Well, I think AGI is a lot of people just think of some type of singularity and Terminator incident where like yes. now we cease to exist because AI has crushed us into the ground and we're no more sort of thing, which I think is to me inconceivable, but okay. you know, whatever. He's so bullish on being inconceivable though. Like he's dead set. <laughs> he's, he's sure of it. Challenge well, him on it, Adam. Challenge him. I just don't know, man. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. I don't I, know if I agree with that. I'm not on the inside, but just this is my own opinion. Right. It's at least, um, I think, inconceivable that it would be sometime in our near future or my lifetime. But I, to me, it's inconceivable. But it depends so much, though, on how you're defining that, which I think is important when we define what AGI is, because you can define it a couple of different ways. And I'll give you completely different answers about what my opinion is. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at Changelog.com, Linode was there to help us, and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now, and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast, and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. What's up? Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Local Podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. I'm Adam Stukoviak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. Today, we're celebrating 100 episodes of Practically I. We invited Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson, the hosts of our show called Practically I. If you haven't heard of it, you should listen to it. And we are so excited about 100 episodes that we invited them on this show. Technically, they invited us on their show. Well, technically, we crashed their party. So a lot of technically is there, but we crashed their 100 episode party. And we're rebroadcasting that episode right here on the Changelog for you to listen to. Oh, and by the way, we have a giveaway as part of this episode. It doesn't end until September 1st. You have time, but check for a link in the show notes for details and good luck on winning. Well, welcome to another episode of Practical AI. This is Daniel Whitenack. I am a data scientist with SIL International. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Benson, who is a principal AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. How are you doing, Chris? I am doing very well. I think it is a lovely day to talk about AI. Oh, it is It is a beautiful day to talk about AI. And I was thinking, we've kind of done a lot of these Practical AI episodes, haven't we? I think we have. I think we're actually hitting a milestone, possibly, at some point here. Hey! Hey, what's up, Hey, who is that? Wait, did we not lock down our Zoom? Oh, who, who is has this? the password? Surprise, guys. We're here. <gasps> ah! What's going on? What's going on? Oh, my gosh! We're busting in on this party. Yeah. Oh, it's Jared Santos and Adam Sokoviak of The Changelog, who are kind of our bosses, you know, Dan? Oh, gosh. Don't, please don't call us that. Are we in trouble? <laughs> no, we got to be careful of what we say. What's going on? Well, we're here to say happy 100th episode, guys. Yes. What a milestone. Excellent. 
It yeah. is. Can you believe we've done that many episodes? Yeah. A hundred episodes talking about AI. Who would have thought there'd be that much to talk about? True. <laughs> well, podcasting is hard. Doing a hundred episodes is harder. So seriously, congratulations for sticking yeah, it out. Absolutely. And not just sticking it out, but like thriving. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a long time. So listeners who've been listening all the way since the beginning may recall that Adam and Jared actually interviewed Daniel and me in episode number one as we got going. And they finally come back. They've been here all along, but now they're back. Yeah, we're back, baby. So the team is all in line together. We've gone full circle. We're silent behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. You're you're always around. But uh, what, what was the date of that first episode? 2018, July 2nd. So... It's been wow. a little over a couple of years. What's funny, though, is the re- recorded date is April 20th, 2018. So I guess we took a little while to ship that. <laughs> first one's the hardest. Is that accurate, Jared, do you think? Yeah, probably. Wow, I wonder what happened there. Maybe we just didn't know how to tag them correctly at that point in time. That could be the case as well. I don't know. Well, there was lots yeah. of stuff to figure out, like how to do the intro, what music to use, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, we were also launching other things at the time. Yeah. True. Regardless. And we had to figure out if this whole AI thing was just a fad or not, you know? That's true. Well, so what's the consensus? Is it a fad? Is it is it over? Oh, it's definitely a fad. <laughs> definitely a fad. Yeah. Yeah. It's going away. Yeah. I think it's sticking around. I think, you know, I don't know one episode that we talked about this and maybe I mentioned it a couple of times. I'm kind of thinking of it at this point, like another layer in the software stack. So just like, you know, developers don't necessarily have to be like into all the weeds of DevOps and like CICD and that sort of thing. But if you're going to be a developer these days, like you're going to sort of interface with DevOps and CICD at some point. So I'm kind of started viewing it that way where if you're a developer these days, even if you're not an AI practitioner, you're going to sort of interface with AI related something at Mm. some point. What are like the most bucketized or verticalized aspects of AI that are like in products today. I know there's computer vision, there's yeah. natural language processing, sentiment analysis. Like what are the ones that people are using where it's like, yeah, this is kind of a little niche inside of AI, this little niche or a product that people are actually putting into in play. Yeah, well, those those are certainly the biggest two right there. And in terms of commercialization, you know, showing up all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of areas even of computer vision. So I would say like certain things like facial recognition or object recognition are fairly commoditized in terms of like major, major categories of detection and that sort of thing. So my wife and I just bought a building for her business and there's no internet there yet. So we bought these like little deer cam things like trail cams that like take snap a picture of something walks by. That's my security system right now. And they have an option. It's like AI integrated. Like if a deer walks through the like zone of the camera, it'll identify that it's a deer and like ping your phone versus like a turkey or I don't know, other things that people shoot, I guess. They're great. I use those to catch lost dogs around here because, you know, we do all this little animal stuff. Ah, interesting. That's a better use, maybe. Yeah. I hate to burst your bubble, Daniel, but deer are not dangerous, man. You don't need to be protecting (laughs) yourself from deer. Yeah, I've even so far caught other things that I uh, wish, wish wouldn't have been in our building. But that's another story. I'm just envisioning the deer coming in from the skylight <laughs> in the Tom Cruise fashion, you know? Yeah. Done. Maybe dun, so. Dun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. I should mention my side project then. 
Yeah, go Please for it. Please do. So I live in a cul-de-sac, and I've got some cameras outside my house. So I've fed all my neighbors' faces into a little system, and then I can detect whenever there are people in my cameras that are not those people. Yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. I'm kidding. I want that. I can't make that, but that would be cool. Interesting. Oh, you could totally make that. Do your neighbors know you fed their faces into a system? Jared's like, dang, dude, you're awesome. I thought you were saying you had done it, and I was like, I'm not telling them. <laughs> Keep me quiet. I'm on a cul-de-sac too, but you know, I don't think any of them are listening to this. So. Wouldn't that be so cool, though? That would be pretty cool. That would be cool. Would you have to get your neighbors' permission? I mean, it's not, it's not that hard to, to build. No. Yeah, you should go for it. It doesn't take that many photos to do it well. So I'm just looking at, for example, like, I mean, Google Cloud, AWS, like all these platforms have different things. So they have like categories, like in Google Cloud, they have site, language, conversation, structured data and cloud AutoML. So site, like these object detection sort of things. Language, of course, there's translation is, you know, very much used uh, these days, but also like transcription, speech recognition. And then there's like conversation type stuff like you know, chatbots and like mm. you're saying sentiment analysis. Right. And so those are all definitely pre-built solutions for all of those things out there for sure. Can you tell that Daniel is a natural language processing expert? You know, <laughs> he just whipped those things right oh, off yeah. the top mm. of his head. Like it wasn't even, he didn't have to think about it. <laughs> well, let me flip this question on its head then. What are some untapped areas or some e emergent areas where people aren't quite putting this into play yet, but it's going to be big? once it reaches developer, the masses. Yeah. First thing that comes to me is adversarial networks, you know, which I know we recently had a, an episode on, but there are so many uses for adversarial situations and, uh, you know, GANs, generative adversarial networks. GANs. So what are some uses of GANs that we could look forward to? Deep fakes. Deep fakes. Yeah, that's the most famous. Aren't those here, though? Or are they just not that easy to do? I think what Chris is meaning is good applications of GANs, probably. I was going for good applications, <laughs> but you went, you went right to it, Jared. You went right to the, you know, the nefarious thing right. there. So, and, yeah. and we're, certainly, we're certainly seeing that. There's some cool things, though. There's like people are using these generative networks to um, like generate it, almost in a data augmentation sort of way. So particularly yeah. like, for example, in healthcare, if you need to generate a bunch of example, like medical imagery of tumors to help you train other models that discriminate between cancer and non-cancer, it's hard to get your hands on that data because it's all, you know, very private. There's mm. simple laws, all those things. So if you have a small amount of it, and then use one of these networks to sort of augment your creation of other data that can really be a benefit. I'll also say, you know, just because I'm always the, the language related person, you know, that even though language and conversation is on this sort of list on the major platforms, you know, almost uh, like 98% of languages of the world have no support. So I think also, you know, as the benefits of AI extend to emerging markets in the developing world, there's going to be like new applications or new challenges in language, but also there's going to be other new challenges that are probably hard to anticipate because most of AI development has been fairly Anglo-centric. So mm -hmm. when you're solving problems in other contexts, um, you know, I think there's mm -hmm. cool stuff going on in like agriculture, um, like even though like uh, we're a lot of times when we think of AI in the US, we might think of like driverless cars or some like cool tech thing like that. But like for a lot of the world, like agriculture is is a big deal. So like 
cool new stuff in agriculture or other areas as AI kind of gets hopefully democratized and the benefits of it extend to more than just, you know, the U.S. and Europe. Is there anything like a like a Hippocratic oath for those in AI? Because I'm thinking like, again, could be both good and evil, right? So is there anything moral compass when you think, okay, I'm going to be a practitioner or an expert or, you know, somebody doing these things, using these for good? Like I can see that tumor detection, totally a good reason to manufacture, for lack of better terms, data to support medical you know, research and whatnot, given the privacy of medical records and individuals and things like that. But like, is there anything out there like a Hippocratic Oath for AI? There is a rapidly developing entire professional field that is addressing that, which is uh, commonly called AI ethics or, you know, responsible AI is another term for it. There's several terms that that lend themselves to it and they're tied into other terms like explainable AI. And so, yeah, there is definitely the recognition, uh, you know, going back, Adam, to your uh, your determination to uh, capture all your neighbor's uh, images and, uh, and and enter them into the <laughs> Yeah, I will do that with their knowledge. I will literally go to them with my iPhone and say, I just this play. is from my neural network to detect you and not the, in quotes, bad guys or bad people that come into our cul-de-sac. Like, so some realness behind that. Our neighbor down the street, like we have, we live in a decent neighborhood, and our neighbor down the street got their tires stolen two days ago. Oh, wow, wow, legit! Like he he went out and his truck was on blocks. That's disturbing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like we have these things happening, and I think yeah. it's just a result of the economy. Honestly, I don't think that people are generally that bad. I think that people get desperate, and these are things that happen in desperate times, and the economy is definitely suffering. So you have people that are willing to do things that maybe they're not more more willing to do otherwise, but I'm not saying thieves don't exist any of the day, but I think it might be a normal occurrence or a more common occurrence. And I live in Houston, so it's a pretty well-populated city. Yeah. You know, if you kind of take that condition and you put it in the context of AI, we don't have safeguards. So we have this field that's developing called AI ethics, but you know, across the world, we really have very little law or regulation uh, that people are required to follow. So for the most part, it is it is other laws that are not specific to this that have applicability. You know, GDPR uh, is is one thing that comes to mind in Europe, and that is really the only you know national level law that I can think of off the top of my hand. Am I forgetting something, Daniel? I know. California has some laws. Yeah, there, uh, there, there's some other regional things. And I think uh, probably there's some others that exist now. But I think in general, people are still reliant on developing good like principle statements and how that trickles down to the actual development workflow. Like Google yeah. and Microsoft, IBM, all these companies have developed their sort of AI principles. And that may or may not trickle down to the actual development work. Also, I think there's still a perception that like any sort of like when developers hear governance or like, you know, that sort of thing, it's just an assumption that it's going to slow down all work Mm -hmm. until like we can't do anything. And so there's still like that feeling I think exists there, although people would acknowledge that it's like there's some important problems to address. You know, it's funny, I was on a call where I was having a conversation with some folks from the uh, the World Economic Forum about a week ago, and we were talking about this a little bit, and there's so many companies putting out so many principles that, they're, that, that it's becoming cluttered and stuff. And a comment was made that, you know, there are enough really good examples out there 
of AI ethics. And maybe, maybe this is a moment where before you go create your own, you do a little soul searching in your organization and go pick one of the 100 mm-hmm. great examples that are already out there, uh, just to, uh, to make it a little bit easier for for people to keep track and stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely a growing field, but we'll, it has a long way to go to mature. It's funny, Daniel. I was listening to your guys' AI ethics episode, which was just recently, and I yeah. very much identified with you when you said that, because Chris, you're, you light up on this topic. Like, I can tell you're into this. This is like the, where you play, thinking at this level. And yeah. Daniel feels, to, 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 from, as a listener and the producer of the show, I think more like boots on the ground, like putting the slapping the code against the data kind of a person. And he's like, when I hear governance or I hear these things, like <laughs> he kind of resonated with what he just said. And I was with him. I'm like, yeah. my eyes roll, they glaze over. I'm just like, oh, here we go again. Yeah, and I think it's uh, what people don't realize though is, um, and it, I don't think it's immediately obvious that and O'Reilly, um, I forget, I forget who wrote the post. Maybe I can find it uh, and put it in the show notes. But they wrote a, a article about like doing good data science, quote unquote, like ethical data science actually like allows you to do better data mm. science. And I, I think that that like is generally true in the sense that you know part of the whole uh, like governance aspect is like understanding like what data produce what AI model that produce which predictions at what time, right? And if you actually know those things, your development workflow can be sort of supercharged because you're not duplicating your effort. You know what you did in the past. You Mm -hmm. can do some, you know, analysis to figure out like, you know, what parameter space you've explored and what like issue popped up when you did what. And so there is like a lot of benefit there. And I think that's why certain of these practical tools plug in. Like we had an episode with um, Allegro AI recently and they have open source project called Trains, which helps you track a lot of these things. And there's other projects like Pachyderm, which is an open source project, helps track some of these things. So I think there is developing some tooling around it. It's still not like super streamlined. So there is like still when you when you're, you know, on the ground doing the development, like it's not just like there's no road bump when you try to integrate these things. Right. Everyone has their own <clears throat> their own approach to it and their own solutions. There's no standardization yet. We're we're way before that. You know, it's in TensorFlow, but once again, they have you know that team has done, um, and I haven't used it, but presumably a really good job. Uh, but it's their thing, right? That their community is for. So it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out in the years to come. It's kind of like a code of conduct, similar concept, yeah. right? Like uh, mm-hmm. um, you need one, you should have one. If you don't enforce it, it's useless, right? If you don't have the tooling to help you enforce it, then it's enforce it, then it's difficult to enforce. They're hard to write, so you usually start with somebody else's. But if you don't internalize that somehow, then you just cargo culted somebody else's values, and they're not yours. And so there's lots of things there. I'm curious how the state of explainability has moved since you guys started the podcast, because that's one big aspect of this, right? Like the scary, hard thing about machine learning and whatnot is the fact that you're basically putting data into a black box, training a model, and then out comes your response. Whereas there's no, there's not necessarily a policy that created that response. It was a bag of bias or not bias or whatever you put in. Uh, with algorithms, we can write an algorithm and you can go back and say, who wrote this? And you're like, I wrote that. Why'd you write that? Well, because my boss told me, why'd he do that? Oh, here's the policy. This is a bad policy, right? And it had these bad effects with these things, it's non-deterministic. You're like, I don't know how we got this result. It just happened. But as you talked about, there's there's progress on explainability, which is great, both 
as an end user, why are you showing me this ad? Daniel, you you interviewed Darwin AI uh, recently. Yeah. You know, what, what, what was your takeaway? Yeah, that's definitely a good episode to, to listen to. There's some some things happening there in terms of explainability. But I think that there has been some progress. I am hesitant to say that, like, I feel like there's been a, a huge amount of progress. There's still a lot of open challenges and open questions. There is more, like, organized information now, though, I think. Um, I'm thinking of there's a book which you can actually read online. It's called Interpretable Machine Learning by Christoph Molnar. Um, And you can just read through the entire book. And he talks about like all sorts of things from, you know, uh, counterfactual explanations and adversarial examples. And, um, you know, we just had a previous show on adversarial examples. And so there is like gradually more tooling and organized information out there. But I don't think there's a consensus on this subject either like how to approach it but there's just like a series of tools in the toolbox that you can use and maybe not a you know people are still developing those and still actively researching them and it depends too a little bit on the like type of data and model and such so when certain things happen like you know uh there's like a model that uh enhances an image and you put in like you know, Barack Obama's image and then the enhanced image turns out like he's a white guy and there's like this like blows up on Twitter and stuff that motivates a lot of like in computer vision. I think they've been struggling with this for quite some time in other areas like natural language processing. It's probably a little bit newer. Dealing with application performance, you ask questions like which endpoint is triggering memory increases? Are slow requests to a particular endpoint cascading to the app? Why is this endpoint slow for only a handful of users? Has this performance pattern occurred before? What changed since the most recent deploy? Those are just a few questions easily answered by Scout APM. Scout is application monitoring that continually tracks down N plus one database queries, sources of memory bloat, performance abnormalities, and a ton more. Thousands of engineers trust Scout APM to help them uncover performance issues you can't see in the charts. Learn more and get started for free at scoutapm.com slash changelog. No credit cards required. Again, scoutapm.com slash changelog. Let's talk about what has changed since that 2018 April to July timeframe, episode one through episode 100. I've been listening. I've been producing alongside. So I do know one thing. I'll cue you up, Chris, because I'd love for you to say this again or say it to me. One thing you've seen and you've said, which I'm not quite sure I know what you mean by it, is that you think that we're moving into a post deep learning era or not post, but beyond deep learning era of AI. Can you say what you mean by that and explain it to me? Yeah, and it's actually on my mind a lot these days. It's been on my mind today before we started talking about this, you know, before we did the show, because I'm having conversations with other people uh, about the same topic. And to set it up, if you look at these last couple of years, and when, when we started the show, we were still in kind of the ramp up stage 
were deep learning. I mean, there were stuff there was stuff just coming out every day because everybody was finally setting their focus to it. It was being funded, and we were getting some pretty amazing stuff coming out on a day to day or weekly basis. And and some of those early shows, you know, Daniel and I, we, we would struggle to figure out which news items to include in the show and which ones to just not mention because there just wasn't the time. Mm. So it was very exciting, very wild west. You never know what's going to happen next kind of moment. We've matured since then. And so it's definitely, we kind of went through the kind of the rise of computer vision and all its various things. And there was, a, for a while, there was a new algorithm every every week coming out in that space. And then we transitioned into the NLP period where we had tremendous progress there. And Daniel has been right in the middle of that. I've learned so much from him. But we're also, we've matured quite a long way in a fairly short amount of time. And one of the things I'm noticing is we're still having things like, I mean, GPT-3 just came out recently and that was a, a big deal. But I, I don't see the the like every week things happening. And so because we're seeing kind of an evolutionary progress, there's a lot of people in this space that are starting to say, have we mined this for all the the big new things or, or, or maybe most of them. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet, but are we getting to a point where we've had some maturity and we're having lots of kind of just evolutionary improvements in the, in the current space of deep learning. And because of that, a lot of people are turning back to kind of AGI, uh, you know, which is artificial general intelligence. The idea of the, the AI that can kind of do multiple complex things instead of this simple AI that we have, the narrow AI that is very good at doing one particular task. And so there's talk of something that if you had said this to me two years ago when we started, I would have laughed. <laughs> I would have, you know, like, there's no way. And that is the idea of an AI winter at some point down the road. I don't think it's quite that because it may be that the research being in a more in a slightly more mature area mm. is focusing on lots of evolutionary things. But we probably have quite a ways to go before AGI. So I think we might have a lot of commercialization over the next few years about what's already out here because there's tons of industries that can use what's already been created and discovered. But how far are we from the next major step up revolutionary wise? That's not just an evolution of the existing, but a new thing coming out. I always, and Chris knows, I kind of cringe a little bit when we talk about AGI and like general intelligence because I think what a lot of people mean by that doesn't like it doesn't mean what they think it means. Mm. What does it mean and what do they think it means? Well, I think like AGI is like the a lot of people just think of like some type of singularity and like Terminator incident where like now we cease to exist because AI has like crushed us into the ground and we're no more sort of thing, which I think is to me inconceivable. But, you know. Whatever. He's so bullish on being inconceivable, though. Like, he's dead set. He's <laughs> he's sure of it. Challenge well, him on it, Adam. Challenge him. I just don't know, man. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. I don't I, know if I agree with that. I'm not on the inside, but just this is my own opinion. Right. It's at least, um, I think, inconceivable that it would be sometime in our near future or my lifetime. But I, to me, it's inconceivable, but... It depends so much, though, on how you're defining that, which I think is important when we define what AGI is, because you can define it a couple of different ways. And I'll give you completely different answers about what my opinion Mm. is uh, on those. And I think this comes back. We had a conversation about the uh, NeurIPS, which is a big 
AI research conference and in the keynote, they were talking about AGI and they were talking about it in much more terms. Like I could grasp like certain things like the architectures that we've been seeing in in natural language processing that involve attention and self-attention and models that actually go beyond sort of fitting parameters, but actually paying attention to certain pieces of data more than other pieces of data. And they tied that into saying, okay, well, that's a like that's an advancement to generalization. And I can like latch on to that. That seems like some interesting steps there. And so, yeah, I think it does depend on how you define it. And to Chris's point as well, I think that, you know, people are going to start trying new sorts of things. And I just looked up Sasha Rush. We had him on the podcast from Hugging Face um, a couple weeks ago. And he was uh, one of the organizers at iClear, which is another one of the huge AI research conferences. And he posted a graph, like he graphed over the last two years. So while we've had the podcast, the keyword growth for certain topics in research over that 2018 to 2020. And I was actually somewhat shocked. So the the top growth was uh, a thing called graph neural networks, which is a new way of um, constructing neural networks to work on graph structured data. And so I think that that's an indication that people are like, they've pushed the sort of architectures that people are used to Mm -hmm. pretty far and they're searching kind of for something new and exploring new areas and new like types of structured data, new types of data, maybe multimodal types of data where multiple different types of data are linked. So that's really what I think of when I think of people like pushing the boundaries a bit. Yeah, but it's deep learning specifically. If you think of AI as as a broader collection of technologies that are advanced, you know, these are more deep learning things. And I think some of the other luminaries in this field talking more about what AGI means to them and, you know, what they think about that and stuff. And then you kind of have the whole commercialization thing going. So there's a little bit of divergence in some areas between the research community and the commercial interests, the commercial community, you know, community, because, you know, we're seeing deep learning models uh, and architectures deployed uh, in many different areas. But that is separate from, you know, what what leading researchers at Google Brain or OpenAI or something like that would be focusing on. So you're seeing people kind of cash in on where we're at, um, which is good. And I think we'll see it everywhere. I mean, just pervasively. But that's different from where things are going in the future. Mm. And, you know, it also, going back to the AGI point, one of the things I think that I've learned in this two-year period is I think I was unclear on the idea that if you were to look into this somewhere down the road future about, you know, AGI comes about and, uh, you know, obviously we're a long way from that. But if, if at some point, I think people confuse whether or not consciousness is part of AGI or not. And so I think we'll get to tremendous levels of intelligence that has no sense of self or consciousness many years before right. any breakthroughs on, on the latter, on consciousness. So, you know, we're, we're already seeing models that in very specific areas can outperform any human in a particular task. And so, you know, if you extend out that computation capability, then if you're defining intelligence as a form of computation, um, being able to solve a problem, then we're kind of, we're much farther down that pure computational road than we are. I don't, you know, you can have a, a, an amazing model that can outperform any human, but that doesn't mean that it, it's thinking, wow, I wish I had a cup of coffee right now. For sure. That's a big leap right there. Self-awareness is a key ingredient missing. I'm not sure that's clear in most people's minds, because if I have five different conversations on this topic with five different people, their idea of what they're starting from 
all five can be very, very different. Yeah, and maybe a good way to put it in one of the reasons why it's inconceivable to me is because like the way that we're approaching this path to advancement in AI, like we're going to destroy the planet way before an AI singularity like happens. There was a study, it takes like, we release into the atmosphere as much carbon as five cars during their entire lifetime when we train one of these state-of-the-art NLP models just once. Wow. So I think if we were to say, oh, let's just like keep rolling with this, like we're going to have to be living on Mars by the time the, you know, AI singularity happens. So that's like a whole nother strain of things where it's like, can we actually solve some type of the computational issues that are happening with AI? And we're going to have to like, we can't just keep doing things status quo. We have to figure out like more efficient and like creative ways of doing what we're wanting to do, I think. You know, to your point there, when we do get to that point where the singularity does come about and it's self-aware, it's going to start off depressed as hell. <laughs> you know, we'll have destroyed the planet. It'll be like, why did I bother? No, it'll turn itself off. Why did I wake yeah. up to this? No, it'll just turn itself off. Snooze. I'm way too, I'm using way too much energy here. And has anyone noticed we have a princess bride a thing going here? We keep saying the word inconceivable. That's true. And and we were saying, I don't think that thing means what you think that thing means. I, I was hoping that someone would do some other reference after I said that, but I wasn't. There is a princess bride theme going in this episode. Anybody want a peanut? No, that was too <laughs> non sequitur. <laughs> Let's talk about GPT-3 for a minute, just to completely, it's not actually a hard shift because I think it plays into this concept that you're referring to where it's like a plateauing. And a question that I have, because what happens with us who aren't deep in the field like you all are, is every once in a while we just get impressed with the results of some sort of new technique or model. And it has been a while, so I've definitely seen the slowing for me where it's like I feel like I've seen a lot of the things and it's like, yep, I've seen that before, that's cool. Like different applications, I think the color transformation stuff is really cool, right? With style transfer kind yeah, of things. Yeah, super cool, like yeah. de-oldify. Yeah, exactly. So you're just seeing like, well, let's take that and apply it to X, Y, and Z. And then every once in a while, you get super impressed. And GPT-3 just made a splash this summer on kind of like the tech Twitter and the VC Twitter and like in our space by generating some pretty realistic and even tricky sentences and phrases and blog posts even. And I don't know what GPT-1 or GPT-2 were. I don't know what GPT-3 is. I know it's open AI. I know it's the first time I've signed up for an AI-related beta. I'm like, I want to play with this. You know, it's it's that. But is that like, is GPT-3 kind of like the last or the next phase? Is it an evolution of what they've been doing? Is it a brand new thing? Tell us your guys' take on that thing. Daniel's our NLP expert, yeah. so I'm going to throw <laughs> this to him. Okay. So I think it's a, an amazing achievement and like incredible results and also like people just being really creative in their use of it. I don't think it's like a fundamental paradigm shift in terms of like how we're doing modeling necessarily. And one of the reasons that they listed in not releasing the model publicly was the fact that like it requires an extreme amount of like compute to make it run like efficiently and, and good, which people just don't have access to like normal people, maybe like us on the call. I don't know if I want to call us normal, but speak for yourself <laughs> and, and open AI people. It's like <laughs> other than everyday people. Yeah, it is an amazing achievement. I think it's an amazing achievement, both computationally and scale wise. And, um, you know, what they had to do to achieve that 
scale and all of that. But I think it isn't a sort of paradigm shift in the way we're going about things, I guess. It still fits into, I think, this this model of bigger and bigger sort of general language models that people are training on huge amounts of data using sort of uh, task, uh, multitasks or, or arbitrary tasks to help the model learn about language, like filling in words or you know, question answering or sentence completion or character completion or uh, predicting next sentence and like these sort of tasks that people don't really care about that much, but are used to train these like large models that are then able to be fine tuned for very many tasks that may be unrelated, like, you know, uh, translating code from one programming language to another or, you know, uh, generating like uh, understanding queries to generate, you know, front end components and that sort of thing. I know those are a couple of things that were shared in yep. the changelog Slack. So, yeah. yeah. Could you maybe hypothesize about what's after this first magic trick? So you mean for GPT-3? Exactly. Like, you know, so the, I, I say that's the first magic trick to sort of like introduce this new, you know, generation of language prediction model and, and what it can do. Like, it's very impressive that that, that blog post was generated. And then I think like on some ethical level, like do I trust that blog post less because it wasn't actually generated by a human? So why do I just trust humans so much more than let's say anything else? That's an aside, but I think like, okay, this is the initial magic trick. What are the actual applications of it? What's what's beyond this blog post for GPT-3? Yeah, for me, it'll. I'm mostly interested in how people go about like interacting with this model because the standard has kind of been in the past that you know people train a model and then at some point like a serialized version of that model is released and you can load it into your own code and do like nifty things with it that's you know not going to happen in this case for reasons that were on purpose that they are releasing this via API. They're running it internally. They can shut it off when they want to. There's interaction patterns that are governed by that API, which aren't just kind of, you can do whatever you want. Mm. And so I think it'll be interesting to see like, you know, how that influences how people are using it. Obviously, as you've already seen, there's a lot of creative uses already, but I think that I know why, you know, these reasons why they did this. And, you know, that's within OpenAI's set of AI principles, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it also somewhat constrains or puts some boundaries, I think, on, you know, how you're going to, to use it. And so I, I'm mostly actually interested not so much in the application because I, I think it'll be things similar to what we've seen in the past, maybe just leveled up a notch but more how people figure out ways to use the API or, you know, develop workarounds or creative uses and that sort of thing. So the, the workflow wise, it's very different. Back to the inconceivable part though, this shows some level of fear. Yeah. From humans to non-human in this case, like the machine, so to speak. There is some sort of fear. Maybe it's a fear of how other humans will use this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. But the governance and the API and the restrictions definitely shows, you know, either, you know, responsibility or fear. I'm not sure. Maybe it's both. <laughs> well, it's a tool, yeah. right? And any yeah. tool can be used for evil or good. Yeah. And, and we've had this conversation a bunch of times on the show in, in that 
you know, like every technology, you know, people always take technologies and most people use them for, for good ends. And there's always a, a handful of actors that use it for bad ends. And the worry here, obviously, is especially if you combine this, you know, like we're talking about GPT-3 and first it's been done. So, you know, people know, even if they don't have the details, they now have seen it. It will eventually get out there, whether it comes from its point of origination or whether it comes from some other group that says, oh, I think I could do that as well. I've seen the results. I have a, a pretty good sense. That's possible down the road. And we have seen that with previous models coming out and, and then other people kind of piling on. But if you combine that with obviously other aspects like generative adversarial networks and we're talking about deep fakes and stuff like that, then there is room for bad actors to do stuff. And so that is a concern. So, you know, when you're detecting that, I think it's less about, you know, it's not that we're worried that we're about to hit the singularity and, you know, what do we do about these machines? I think it's more a question about what do we do when the criminal mind out there or something decides that it's commoditized to the level they can use it effectively and they, they decide to deploy it. And we have to, we have, yeah. to, it's part of the process. We got to sort that out. I mean, that fear element to me, it comes down to a couple different pieces. It's one that like this is trained on so much data in a sort of programmatic way that like when you scrape 80 million websites, like you don't always know like what's going to happen if you train a model on that and what your output's going to be. So there is this element of like, how do you probe all of the unexpected things that could be output from this model? That's, that's a hard piece. The other thing is just like, I think, you know, yeah, any tool can be used for good or bad. But like, if you think of different tools, like, like we can all go get a hammer from the hardware store, right? And I can choose to like, you know, hang a picture on my wall with that hammer. I can choose to hit someone over the head with a hammer, but everyone can go get a Don't hammer. Don't do that. Like that's, that's like democratized. I can go get a hammer. I right. can go get something else to hit you with. Right. Um, but with, with these sort of AI technologies, if like, for example, China is using these sort of computer vision technologies to detect a person's ethnicity from a street camera based on their walking gait, to determine if you know they're part of a minority population called Uyghurs and so that they can track them and put them in concentration camps. And those Uyghurs, they can't go out to some store and get that same technology. Like there's such an imbalance with this technology and who has access to it and who has the compute, who has the money to run the compute, who has the facility to get the data that the imbalance of power is really emphasized in for these technologies in particular, I think. And there's a good point there when you talk about scale, uh, is that, you know, to your point there, it's a powerful tool that is powerful enough to where nation states are very, very interested in this. And they put a lot of money and effort into this. And that just amplifies how things can go off the rails. You know, it's it's one thing if I uh, get a, you know, a mean streak in me and I go out and use a tool to go do something. But when people do it at that level, it's one of the challenges of our time. So, I mean, I think it's not unique to AI. Uh, it's any tooling, but it's going really fast in general. If you look at the fact that over just a decade, we've made profound advancements uh, in this area that are usable. So this is part of society. This is part of culture. We have to get solutions to this and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So rather than be afraid of it, we just need to be focused on on answering it effectively. We, we need great minds to put their attention on it. 
What up, nerds? Adam Stachowiak here, editor-in-chief of Changelog. We're beta testing a membership program around the Changelog and our other podcasts. And we think it'd be really valuable to you and the whole community. We call it Changelog Plus Plus. And it's the best way to directly support this show and all the podcasts we produce here. The videos, the tweets, and the other stuff we create here at Changelog. We have big ambitions for this, but we're experimenting for now to make sure there's interest. So when you sign up today, you make the ads disappear. You get the change log and all the shows you love, just no ads. And I guess that means this part you're listening to right now, well, it'll be gone. We also have some extended episodes planned, some bonus content, some merch store discounts, a lot of fun ideas. And since it's such early days, we're offering this membership at a 40% discount for early adopters. And that's you. That discount, though, expires at the end of August. So head to changelog.com slash plus plus to join today. Lock in that discount, get closer to the metal and make the ads disappear. Again, that's changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you supporting us as a member. So y'all have done a hundred episodes and I've been curious to ask you this for a while, which is that when we set out to do this show, we called it practical AI. And that first word has really been kind of a primary focus of the show and maybe a guiding light to a certain degree. I, I remember hearing Daniel oftentimes saying it is practical AI and he'll use that as a way of kind of turning the conversation into the practical aspects of deploying and using and et cetera, these technologies. But I'm wondering if you felt like that's limited you or made the show go in directions that you haven't wanted it to, or if there's any sort of maybe an inkling of like a regret of being pigeonholed into the practical AI podcast. No. Okay. <laughs> um, no regret. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, I don't know. I guess you could interpret practical as being like practitioner, like you know, in the sense of like tutorials and implementation tooling sort of things. Um, but we have gone into things like ethics or like the use of AI for good or telling stories more so than just like highlighting methods, I guess. And to me, that still fits within like the practicalities because it's, you know, the same reason why you want to see like case studies or whatever when you're looking at a particular tool or product, you know, something like that, where like you want to get a sense of how people are using a thing. Um, you want to get a sense of how people are thinking about a, a thing that maybe you haven't thought about as much. So um, to me, I don't necessarily feel pigeonholed. I think we have gone into certain of those things, but, you know, it's kept us away from to me, it's like brought a bit of focus so that we're not always, you know, talking about Terminator and those things. And I'll, I'll actually, to be honest, and since you asked, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm going to actually say occasionally, mm. Mm. just to give a different perspective. I would imagine that anyone who's listened to us for a while has has heard me. If, if Between the two of us, I tend to be the one that gets out there into the speculative realm yeah. uh more often yeah and, and i'm and the maybe, downer that always is like i don't know how to implement that <laughs> from my terminal so <laughs> i'm out i'm running step-by-step directions daniel's like if i can't deploy it to kubernetes it doesn't count yeah, exactly <laughs> you know i definitely have an interest 
and and looking out there into what is essentially speculative, yeah. you know, even philosophical realms. Part of that is probably not because of my job, uh, because that's not what we do at my company, but but just as a person myself uh, in the defense world. And if I go give talks, you know, Daniel and I have talked about all these talks we've given over the last few years. And I commonly am asked about these speculative things because people make the assumption incorrectly that being in defense and being um, doing AI, that I must be thinking about Terminators all the time. So it's it's something I do think about that idea. It's not real life. It's not real life in the defense industry or at the DOD. But I will confess that I can't help wondering about a future like that and putting some thought into it. So uh, it occasionally creeps out into the podcast. And I think Daniel does the right thing. <laughs> he quickly, he goes, well, it is practical AI. It's good to have the balance. Exactly. <laughs> and he pulls me back to reality on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. As you can tell, probably tell from 100 episodes that uh, I'm not, uh, maybe not the speculative philosophical type right (laughs) he whips me into shape immediately yes i do struggle in those like planning strategy meetings at certain points in like organizations where it's like well how does this fit with our vision how does this like you know what are our transformational things that are gonna happen in the world based on the stuff and yeah so i think it's good for me to be pushed into those areas it's definitely good for me to put be pushed into areas where i'm looking like beyond mm-hmm. like my my vim window but um you know i also always like to you know go back there i kind of see the name as more of a less of a restriction and more of a a north star rather than like this is the direction you're going you can go into the fringes to cuz it's always good to entertain mm-hmm. possibility but yeah. maybe a better way to define it might be what you think practical actually means. Like, I think practical means possible and useful. I do, too. What's the lore to the, the word practical for you both? I think that we keep it, for the most part, and even me, <laughs> despite my, my confession a moment ago, I think this is real life. Uh, so when we were starting, AI was still very young and cool and most organizations didn't have that as a capability in-house and that's still developing but right now it's it's no longer the thing where it's the strictly aspirational uh, intent it's now something that a lot of organizations are incorporating and they have really practical problems to deal with like okay well we now know how to produce to address a, um, an architecture and produce a model that can be deployed. And how do I get that into our deployment you know, methodology? How do we get it out to our customers? How do we do that? And I think that's where the bulk, that's where 99% of AI is and should be, I think. And for most people, you know, if you're not strictly a researcher. And so I think my sense is that we've given a platform for that, for people to talk about it and to come on the show and to help others. And I think one of the things that might have set us apart is that we're always thinking about is this going to be meaningful for for listeners who are trying to do it themselves out there and i think that's where where daniel's but this is practical ai mm-hmm. drawing us back on the line is really important um because that's it's fine to dream a little and it's fine to speculate a bit but for the most part people are trying to figure it out and get work done and i think that we actually help them get there yeah i think useful and meaningful are two words that have been mention in the past uh, couple minutes that are to me important um so there are useful and meaningful things that are not code or implemented on github right 
you know, there's things that influence our workflow and the problems that we solve that are, you know, still useful and meaningful, but not like talking about a framework or specific open source project or something like that. So, yeah, I agree with that. So over the course of a hundred episodes, surely there's been highlights and lowlights. There's been successes and struggles. We didn't prep you guys like bring your favorite episode or anything like that. But <laughs> if you could just think back and what have been some of the struggles of the podcast and what have been some of the successes for y'all. You want to go first, Daniel? Yeah, sure. Put me on the spot. I did. Let's see, see how I did that. I think one of the successes for me is the sort of, um, and we're always like, I think we can always do better in getting a sort of variety of guests. And we're always like trying to cover different things that we haven't covered. But I do think that we've had guests on sort of a range of like from students, just like getting into AI and giving their perspective all the way up to like, you know, people like like Stuart Russell and others that have been like luminaries in the field. So I think it's really cool that we've got that diversity of perspectives and, you know, a whole lot of different topics covered. So looking back, I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm pleased with is that kind of variety of, of perspectives that we've brought, um, all kind of bringing their unique spin on on whatever they're they're talking about. Also, I, I don't know if this was specifically a thing that we set out to do when we started. I don't think it was, but even from the very start, I forget it was one of the first episodes where we talked about a TensorFlow project that was um, helping uh, African farmers with this um, app where they took pictures of their cassava plants and you know it helped them. That was really early. Yeah, identify disease. That that was like one of the first episodes. I forget. Like ever since that point, it seems like we've always kind of had in the back of our mind, like high, specifically highlighting AI for good episodes. So I think those are really the ones that stand out for me. There's a one with, um, you know, uh, representing a, a project from Data Robot where they were working, trying to detect like waterline issues also in Africa. There were recent ones about like COVID related data and question answering systems related to that, or like getting scientific knowledge out there to scientific researchers about COVID. So those AI for good ones are really some of the ones that stand out to me. Yeah, I, I think I would agree. And I, I, I think going back to what you were saying before, some of these folks that have come on are, are just luminaries in the field. You know, you mentioned Stuart Russell a minute ago. Wojciech Zaremba. Oh, yeah. yeah a um, lot of different people. Bill Daly from NVIDIA, you know, we had uh, Anima and Anand Kumar, I've probably just messed up her name, and I apologize for that, um, on the show from NVIDIA. And just, I mean, just these people that have really wowed me and, and, and to some degree been heroes for us. But at the same time, then we bring on people that have never been out there at all, but they have great ideas and they have great insight and they're hungry and they're doing really amazing things. And it's been a platform for them to come out and share that. And so I think it's been, uh, from my standpoint, a really good balance that we've struck in terms of not just going with superstar people or just going, you know, whatever, but, but being able to to get all those different perspectives into the show I think that's good for the AI community. I wish I wish that there were many channels within the AI community to do that. There's going back to actually a 
one of the things that I admire from another changelog show, which is Go Time, for those who don't know, that's for the Go programming language, is the Go community has really rallied around that podcast. And I love that sense of community. And I think that's been one of our aspirations here is to give the AI community a place to rally, to be real, to have this chat, like what we're doing today and what we've been doing all these episodes. I think I really would like to see us be more successful you know, in the next hundred episodes for trying to bring people on board and make it a conversation and recognize that AI is just now part of life, like so many other things, and that there's room for every voice involved. We've seen great success there, uh, especially with JS Party and GoTime in terms of community representation, diverse voices, diverse perspectives, polite disagreements. We love that. I mean, we think that's a welcome place for good dialogue like that and conversation. And, and those two shows are great examples of of us iterating towards that, in quotes, greatness. I don't want to call us great, Jared, but it, we're doing a great job there. Those shows are very representative of two diverse spectrums in software, JavaScript, Go, of course, and you know all the ways those two languages and communities tentacle out to, to do what they do. And I'm happy that both of you are inspired by that, impressed by that, and desire that too. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the cool things that I've seen is there are people that are active on our Slack channel, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and are interacting with both Chris and I, um, you know, a good bit. And like even today, I was getting, you know, show suggestions or like, hey, um, I was looking for a show about this, but it doesn't look like you covered that yet. And so all of that's really cool. I think there's been a lot of things throughout the episodes where people have suggested something, we've, we've tried it. Um, or we've we've covered a gap that people wanted to talk about. And so one of the things that I maybe didn't quite expect was that sort of ongoing continual, like throughout the week, outside of the podcast conversation with a lot of people out there that aren't guests on the show, but are involved in the community. And that's really cool to see like people, you know, having discussions that are useful for them, even outside of just listening to the podcast on these different, you know, channels. The reach, I think, you know, Daniel and I came into this not having ever done this before. And, you know, Adam, you and Jared have been doing this for years and you're and you're real pros at it. I think it was very surprising to me when, you know, it wasn't a, a big deal kind of thing. But like when I joined my current employer and I'd, I'd meet some people and they'd say, oh, I really enjoy your podcast, by the way. Just wanted to let you know that as we're meeting. And it was a quiet thing and no big deal. But it was like, wow, the reach is really you know, really there. And the conversation that that creates is really there. And I've ended up away from the podcast, having a lot of conversations about topics that we address because you'll meet people out there and they just want it. They're like, by the way, you did this episode on such and on this topic. And I'm, it just really struck a chord with me and you'll end up spending, you know, 15 or 20 minutes just kind of redressing it. It might've been an episode from many months or, or ago. And that's had a fairly profound impact on my awareness that that sense of community, it's not always completely apparent, but we have developed that. And AI is getting there. It's following other technical communities in that way. And, and the need was recognized and people are, are choosing to opt in. And that, that's something that's uh, truly gratifying from my standpoint. So my interview skills failed me once again. I asked two questions, allowing you to slip the second question. Uh-oh. But my persistence pays off. So I'll ask that one again. <laughs> Struggles. Doing podcasts is hard. Uh, Getting to 100 is hard. Yeah. Most people fade. 
and there's a lot of work involved. What has been some struggles along the way? We know we've had life problems, guests problems, scheduling problems. You know, it's not all roses and yeah. and rainbows. So what have been some of the struggles in, in, along the way? I felt like for quite a while when we were starting, when we were reaching out to guests, I mean, I knew certain people in the community and certain of them were easy to kind of make connections. But when you're starting out a podcast and you don't have a long history of things, it's like I feel pretty much like a creeper reaching out to these people on like Twitter or whatever, <laughs> like sending them a random message yeah. like you have no idea who I am. Um, thankfully, people are mostly gracious, but there was a lot of like no, like no response. Like there is that time period where you feel like, is this really going to like pick up? I know s- some people are listening, but like, you know, every Every time I reach out to people, it's like explaining this thing we're trying to do. And like, I'm kind of coming out of left field. So um, I think that was like a bit of a hard, hard period for me. And of course, anytime I've learned over time that anytime I listen to myself, which I try to do not, you know, like 100 percent of everything I say, but I try to listen to what I'm saying. I think it is like various things that you do that like make you cringe and then you replace those things like you say all right i'm gonna like work on that and then there's various other things that you just replace that thing with that Mm -hmm. also make you cringe and so it's like yeah there's a little bit of that too and you know life happens chris and i i think have both had times where i tell chris i'm like i need you to like push this forward for a couple weeks because i am like I'm not going to be able to do it. Thankfully, I don't think either one of us had had one of those times where we both needed it at the same time. But uh, there have definitely been times like that where we flip, flip-flop back and forth. Yeah, I, I would agree. And and we rely on each other. You know, Daniel said that about me. But, um, you know, without going into all the specifics, uh, listeners who've listened know I've, we've had some challenges this year that have certainly affected my family. And Daniel stepped right in and just took care of things. And that was good. And you really have to, you know, all of us that are doing this, uh, we have day jobs. So we, we need our uh, the people that we work with to make allowances and accommodate to some degree. We have families who are supportive. We're all doing these podcasts out of our houses and, you know, ha- families having to, to, to recognize that you need a, a little time, a little quiet space mm-hmm. to get some stuff done. And um, I, I know for ours, when, you know, we have a, a house full of dogs and a young daughter, and that can be pretty challenging. And then frankly, there's a burden that I didn't appreciate back when I was listening to the change log and go time and JS party uh, before we started this. I don't think I understood the burden of trying to provide a great hour or 45 minutes of content, you know, week after week after week. I've learned to really appreciate that when I listen to other is I listen to other podcasts that it is hard work to do that. And so I've developed as a as still an amateur in this compared to you guys who are the real pros. I've really developed an appreciation for the amount of of effort it goes in to at the bottom. Uh, what 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 it comes down to is serving your audience and trying to help people get what they need out of it. And you know they're they're choosing to listen to you for a little while, and they should rightly expect something from that. And mm-hmm. so um, I think that's what I would finish with is just I there's always the burden for Daniel and me to make sure that we have content that is good for people to listen to. And so for those of you out there listening, please keep coming at us with social media, all the places that we like to engage you. We are listening. We are welcoming your ideas. You are giving us our, our ideas for our future shows and um, and we want to serve you. And finally, after like a year of doing the podcast, I got to meet Chris in real life and he's a real person. 
So uh, like, sort of. We'll have to take your word for it. We haven't actually met in person before we started the podcast, and that happened way later, which was kind of funny. It was actually, yeah, it was about a year, and it was only in Jan- the beginning of January, right before the COVID stuff set out. So most of these episodes, <laughs> uh, of these hundred episodes, were done. Daniel and I had never been in the same place at the same time before. We became friends through the podcast. We just started our COVID life early. Not. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. we did. But it's worth mentioning. It's remarkable that it is through these episodes that everyone listens to that Daniel and I have become very, very dear friends. And um, we had never met until January of this year. So in person. It's amazing. Well, these struggles illustrate why we're here today, which is to celebrate. Yes. One, Jared and I are both proud of you guys. You guys have done a great job with this show. It takes, as you've said, a lot of work to produce uh, on all sides. So one, congrats on 100 episodes. Two, we're proud of you guys. You guys are doing a great job. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Yeah. Thanks for believing in us and uh, keeping us on track. It's been awesome, truly. And yeah, and you guys have been right there. Even though you're not there from the listener's perspective, you're invisible to them in most episodes. You're actually there every episode. And I I cannot count the number of times that Daniel and I have thought, oh, at least we have a great post-production team that can clean up whatever mess we just created during that. And and so that's really important. Yeah, and do cool promotions on everywhere. And uh, yeah, keep the wheels moving. And it's awesome. Yeah, it's a team effort. Mm. Totally. Well, I'm not just a producer. I'm a happy listener. And I, I fall into the category of the AI curious, which we know that yeah. practically our listeners kind of fall into a couple of categories. You have the practitioners, then you have the curious. And I'm very much in the curious. I've never used any of these things in a useful context. Uh, what was the other word? Useful and valuable? Meaningful. Meaningful. Yeah, I've never possible. used it in a useful or a meaningful context. Oh, possible. Oh, possible okay. is a good and one, too. That's yeah. what I inconceivable. said. Inconceivable. Yeah, I've definitely used it in some inconceivable fashions. But I know more about this stuff than I ever thought I would just by osmosis of listening along and producing. And I'm very much converse, I'm a conversational AI enthusiast at this point i can talk to anybody about it and and trick them into thinking that i know what i'm talking about that's a valuable skill in life yeah whenever you need a large salary you can go out and really really score high on that interview i think i probably could so what's next for the podcast what what can people expect soon where's it headed yeah you know for me I I was thinking about this as we were coming into this, and one of the things that I really would like to hear more about is is how people are incorporating these AI technologies into their lives and into their work. We hear that to some degree, and we know the breadth that this stuff is, it's just going to be pervasive in every industry, and I'm really curious to learn more. Um, I think partly that may be because I spend, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my own job, and I spend so much time completely absorbed in trying to get my own work done, but people are using this stuff for really cool, cool applications, and I think I would like to go out there and understand where it's being applied and what are some of the things that I never would have thought about. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of gaps that we, that we haven't covered. Even like today I was talking to a listener who saying, Hey, let's cover something about like drug discovery and pharma with AI sort of thing. Like there's just tons of areas that we haven't covered yet. So I think like getting some people on from, from there. And I think also 
you know, developing more good relationships with the kind of leaders in the field and, you know, hearing their perspective over time is something that you can continue to expect along with like those up and comers. And I think there's really cool stuff as well that's happening all around the world outside of the US and and Europe with AI, both in like Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America. And um, one of the things that I really have a passion for and would love to see on the show is us continuing to try to try to get those guests who are really innovating in those areas and bringing the benefits of AI to the whole world, really. So one of the best ways to circle back is to to invite the listeners. We've mentioned community a lot. So one easy way, if you're I'm sure if you listen to this, you may get the outro and occasionally we'll say it in the outro, which is, hey, there's a community. So change all the slash community. But there's a slack. There's lots of people in there. If you want to share your story, these stories, the ways you're tinkering, the way you, the ways you're practicing, et cetera, in AI, you can do that there. So the invitation is there. Change all the slash community, the practically AI channel. Hit that up. Daniel, Chris, they're always hanging there. We're in there. All that good stuff. And there's lots of other people there, too. Come and hang out. You know, another one of the things that I wanted to mention was I think we're at a point now where it's been commoditized enough to where it's not all about business. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, you know, going back, you know, in, in the spirit, Adam, of you talking about, you know, your cul-de-sac, uh, you know, camera identification. Yeah, there's so many places. I, I believe you. I believe you. There's so many places where we can bring kids uh, into this and do weekend projects. We've talked about some of that uh, at the beginnings of some of our episodes where you can bring people in, you can take it into your schools as, as schools are, it, you know, are opening up uh, as COVID gets under control. There's just so many opportunities to do this in with it. You don't have to be uh, a top scientist. You don't have to be a data scientist professionally. You can do it at your house. You can. I've heard so many little home projects that people have gotten into over the last year or two. Actually, I would like to highlight some of those. So if you're a listener and you're doing something cool over the weekend, especially if your kids are involved in it, please let us know about that. I'd really like to share those ideas. I have an eight-year-old daughter and, you know, it's a perfect time for kids to get into this and it's cheap enough and you can get the equipment uh, cheaply these days. So, so yeah, let's I, I bring, bring your family endeavors. It's not always just about work. That's like you said, though, it's real life. It's not going to go anywhere. So it's not, not so going much anywhere. like, Hey, let's teach our eight year olds cause we have to, but more like, cause it's interesting and it's curious. It's fun. But it's wh- really fun. Who'd have thunk it to actually make AI practical to everyday users. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like I literally want to learn about AI to the point where I can do something to help defend my cul-de-sac from nefarious people who are trying to steal our wheels. Like, come on. There's got to <laughs> yeah. be an easier way than that. And I have no idea. And there's tools I've out there. I've got a Raspberry Pi and stuff yeah. like that. So maybe I can arm myself a, with an R-Pi and a camera, of course, camera. and different detection. And maybe my neighbors will let me take their picture and put them into my model. Who knows? <laughs> but that's that's shooting for the moon there. But it could be fun. And I have no idea where to start, really. If you're protecting everyone's tires, why not? Right, you know? exactly. Right. That's what I'm thinking. It's like Neighborhood Watch, only with no people. Exactly. I like it. Well, guys, thanks so much for uh, sticking with it, having an awesome podcast, and thanks for letting us crash. Thanks for interrupting. Yeah, we're happy to yeah. join you for this one. <laughs> Celebrate with you. Gosh, it was a fun crash. I love that. If you hadn't <laughs> interrupted, who knows what this episode might have been? Yeah. <laughs> Wait and see, I guess. No, I'm curious. That's right. All right, give it up for Daniel and Chris rocking 100 episodes of Practical AI. If you're not a subscriber, check it out at changelog.com slash practical AI or 
search Practically I in your favorite podcast app. You'll find us. And as we mentioned, we launched ChangeLaw++, make the ads disappear, get closer to the metal, and support us directly as a member. Learn more, subscribe, join. Right now, it's 40% off as an early adopter. That's you. Check it out, changelaw.com slash plus plus. And of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it fastly, Linode and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder, our Beats Master in residence. And last but not least, you are invited to join the community. It is totally free. Learn more. Check it out at changelaw.com slash community. Join us in Slack and everyone else and say hello. There's no imposters and you are welcome. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Y'all hear my kids there for a second? I guess something fell up there, and my son was like, "No!" I heard it. I was just chuckling because I'm like, "I know it's you guys got to hear it because I can't stop it." I'm half blind and deaf anyway, so <laughs> I dropped the marker though. I mean, you could totally see in the timeline yeah, the little I, spike. There. I heard it. That happens occasionally. That gets edited out. Thankfully, no one gets upset. But hey, mm-hmm. that's how it works. Change love plus plus.